Jamesy? Okay, now, if you didn't say Jamesy, it's because either you are lazy or because you don't know. And if you don't know, let me um, clue you in a little bit what that means. In, uh, um, in Nepal, um, whenever they greet one another, the, the standard greeting across all of India and, uh, and Nepal is Namaste. So if we can have the first slide up on the screen is uh, Namaste, you can see there, is welcome, that's what they say, but, uh, and that's in India and uh, Nepal as well, so I said, but in, um, in Nepal, the Christians, however, greet one another a different word, they say Jamesy, who knows what Jamesy means? Victory in Jesus, You're like yay in the Messiah, Ja means something about uh, victory, Jamesy, so let's all try it again, you ready? Jamesy. And uh, Christians, they always start their talks and they end their talks like that. Um, well, I just got back from two and a half weeks in Nepal and it was a, a very busy time for me. Uh, primarily, I went uh, with a group called Leadership Resources. Uh, these two men here uh, went with me. Uh, the man on the left, his name is Bill Mills. He's the founder of Leadership Resources He's been um, really basically discipling, uh, training pastors and church leaders for 30 plus years. Um, and now he just stepped down for the presidency. Craig Para, who was here during my vacation this summer, is now the president of Leadership Resources. The other man on the right, uh, his name is Alan Jin. He was a, a pastor of a Chinese American church in the Sacramento area for 30 years. And then he stepped down to devote himself to international pastoral training um, of, of which I kind of joined him on. Uh, both these men are, are delightful souls to be with, and uh, Alan especially, being Chinese, just fits right into Asia. You'd never know anything else of, of what he is. Um, so during my time in pastoral training, I, I, I probably taught uh, at least 20 times um, in my time there, was, was gone, whatever it is, two and a half weeks, spent much days throughout, probably two, 14 days in country, uh, spent a long time there just teaching. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that later. It, it was a great trip. Uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to let me go and experience a blessing. I feel more blessed than you because I got to experience many of the blessings firsthand. But I, I want to share those with you and realize that you all sent me and uh, allowed me to do this. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, my plan all along was to basically be in Nepal for two and a half weeks and uh, really just store up what God is teaching me and then preach this morning out of the overflow of, of what I learned and uh, just teach it to you. And so I was, I was hoping to get home like maybe about 11.30 uh, last night, but I got home about 2 o'clock this morning. Um, so I'm, I'm going on a little bit of sleep, but, but my schedule is such that uh, in Nepal it's 12 hours uh, ahead of us, so it's like 10.30 at night, so I'm, I'm doing okay. But just in case I wasn't doing okay, the Krauses gave me a little present today. In case, uh, So if I pop this guy during my message today, you know, you know what that's about. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be back. Also, I did bring back gifts for you all. I, uh, I brought back a little top. Uh, I've tried to do this every time I've gone on a trip to bring something for one, one per family. Uh, you know, it just kind of... Kind of spins a handcrafted, hand um, painted by Nepalis, and uh, you just take one. They're on the back table there, and I would encourage you maybe to leave it out in a public place, um, you know, your dining room table or your kitchen counter, and then you spin it. You can just think about uh, praying for the the people in Nepal. So go ahead and take one of those. Those are, are yours, my gift to you all. And uh, I also then uh, want you to open your Bible to uh, Philippians chapter one. As you're turning there, I want to tell you the privilege I had this morning to uh, awaken all of my kids. Maybe they were up, were they up late last night, Yvonne, for some reason, waiting for me or something? Or maybe cleaning the house. The house looks wonderful, I'm not sure. But I had the opportunity to wake every single one of my kids up this morning. And so what a delight that is, of being gone for two and a half weeks and then coming. And uh, I kissed all of them. And uh, all three girls instantly just hugged me and said, Dad, and kissed me back. And uh, my boys just grunted, <laughs> both of them. 
Um, so I kissed SR, and he just kind of, uh, I kissed David, and he didn't want, uh, he didn't want anything a part of me. So there's, there is a difference between boys and girls, and I saw it this morning. <clears throat> uh, Philippians chapter 1. My message this morning isn't really going to be an exposition so much of this text uh, as much as it is, uh, kind of, kind of think today as, uh, maybe Bible, some, and also some stories of things I experienced, which, which fit into here, Philippians 1. I, as, as, I, as I went through my time in Nepal, I just put some things down and said, oh, I'd like to communicate that to the church, or I'd like to tell about this. And then I was looking um, for a text and really praying about it and, and landed on this one. Um, I forget where. I think I was from Kathmandu, flying to Hong Kong is when I figured out this would be a good text. I just want to open it up for you. We'll teach uh, a bit from it, um, but really use this to see how the church in Nepal fits here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open this text to us, that we would be encouraged from the, the words of Paul here, that we would catch his heart of thankfulness and prayer uh, to a loved people who are participating with him in the gospel and who you were working in to build and to grow. Um, I pray also just as we hear from the, the living saints who are in uh, Nepal and their sacrifice, their commitment, their love to you, the way in which they they serve. Uh, I pray that the stories that I, I tell would be encouraging and strengthening. Uh, Lord, I, I want all done today to be to the glory of Jesus. And I pray that you would, uh, would help. Stir our hearts afresh. Give us a fresh passion to know you and serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well, these words were written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, when he was in prison. You can see that there in verse 7, where he speaks about, uh, it's my imprisonment in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He was in prison. He also identified himself in verse 1 as a bondservant, uh, as a slave of Jesus. Uh, in some regard, it might be because he is a, a prisoner who is bound to Jesus. He writes with Timothy, so Paul wasn't alone. He was with Timothy, his beloved son, and um, in the faith, his precious co-laborer. In the gospel, he had much joy in writing this letter. You can even see that come out in in verse three and four. In verse four, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He's just overflowing with what God is doing there amongst the Philippians. He's writing to the church in Philippi. It says in verse one to the saints in Christ Jesus. That is everyone who's placed their hope and trust in Jesus including, he says, the leadership of the church. You have overseers and you have deacons. The two offices in the church, he's writing to them. He gives a standard greeting in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he then really um, starts his whole theme of what's going on here in Philippians. He gives a, a theme of thanks. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you and prayer. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Here it is. It's thanks and prayer is everything that Paul is doing here in this text as he opens his word to the, the Philippians. My message title this morning is this, Thankful for God's Working in Nepal. 
or thankful for God's work in Nepal. Um, how appropriate it is today, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, just to reflect upon thankfulness. And I'm going to reflect upon how things I'm thankful for about the way God is working, has worked uh, in Nepal. And they come just right from, right from the text. You'll be able to see that. And God is indeed working in Nepal. Um, when I was uh, in Nepal, I spent uh, two weeks uh, with some pastoral training, one in the east and one in the west. And uh, when we were in the east, uh, we didn't stay actually with the, the pastors because the hotel there was sm- smaller and was full. And so we stayed at the uh, home of an American pastor. Um, he pastored a church in um, Texas, Southern Baptist Church, and, and basically left that to really minister to the church in Nepal and uh, Alan Jin, who knows him and had met him earlier, I, I had met him, said he told him one time that he doesn't miss the pastorate in America at all. Uh, really because, uh, he says, in America we have so much, we do so little. Uh, so many people in America are cold to, towards the Gospel. Uh, there, there's so much that people have that why do they need God? And yet these people here in Nepal, they hunger for God and there's a need there and they've come to know Jesus. And when they do that, they cast away their idols and they worship God in whatever circumstances they are. Uh, my father was reminding us during prayer meeting this morning that when he visited there, we visited a church which was basically, what did you call it? In a goat? In, it was in a goat shed, basically, is what goats used to be there. And uh, goats were kind of right outside and they just kind of covered it, covered the mud with maybe a tarp is what I remember. And that's where they met. And the people, the church in Nepal, that is enough for them. If they have Jesus... They are good to go wherever they are. And so this pastor said that God is working here. And indeed, that is my title this morning, Thankful for God's Work in Nepal. And uh, my first point is this, what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for their participation in the Gospel. I'm thankful for the ways in which we can participate with those in Philippi in the Gospel. I get this from from verse 5. Here's why Paul is thankful and here's why Paul is praying for the church in Philippi. And this really is, in some measure, the core of the book of Philippians, is that they participated with Paul in the Gospel. He says, in view of, I'm praying for you, I'm thankful for you, in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. This is what drove Paul to be thankful for, that they shared with him in the Gospel. Now, in some measure, this comes because of their financial support of Paul. If you turn over to chapter 4, You can see in verses 15 and 16 that Paul was supported by them. He says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the Gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for all my needs. And and, and in that sense, Paul shared with them in the Gospel that they were sharing financial resources with him as he was going out and uh, preaching to the different places um, there. But that's not the only way that Paul had an association with them, with uh, the Gospel. They also participated in the Gospel as well as they, they worked it out in the church in Philippi. If you look in chapter 1, verse 27, it's really the, the point of the whole epistle where he says, "...conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent..." I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. And Paul says, yes, you're with me. I'm rejoicing that you participated with me in the progress of the Gospel. You shared with me in that task. But also, I am commending you to walk worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I'm there or whether I'm gone, I can can know that you as a church are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together together for the faith of the Gospel. And that's what the Gospel does. It unifies us. It brings us together. It helps us. And, and they were just working it out in the life of the church. They wanted to spread that abroad as they did in Philippians. And that's what we see him writing in chapter 1 about he's rejoicing that they have joined with him in the Gospel, not only in the church, but also in progressing along as well. And he rejoiced that they... And he charged them... Chapter 1, verse 27, to, to strive together for the faith of the Gospel. And, and just to tell you, one of the most encouraging stories I had from Nepal was uh, participating with them in the faith of the Gospel. The, 
Our church here has supports me so I could go over there so that we could help the church there. We all are participating in the Gospel. And, and they are striving for the Gospel. Um, most of you know that the primary aim of my trip was pastoral training with uh, leadership resources. And uh, we trained two groups. One in the east. How about the next slide here, Adriana? One in the east and one is the west. Uh, the top one there, that was the east, and uh, this group there is there in the west. It was interesting to see the difference between these two groups. Um, the gospel originally came to uh, Nepal through indigenous Nepalis who had a heart to bring uh, the gospel to Nepal because there were Indians, ne- Nepalis in India who then were allowed to travel into Nepal when the country was a closed country. And they arrived straight up through India into uh, the Duran area and into eastern India. And without missionaries is how the gospel first came into... Well, they're Nepali missionaries, without foreign missionaries. They came into Nepal and began to spread the gospel. And, and the, the spread of Christianity in Nepal really started about 1950s, 1960s. It's only a 50-year-old church there. And it spread out from the east and to the west. And you can see a, a marked difference in the maturity of the eastern Nepalis as opposed to the western Nepalis. Uh, just because there's been gospel there longer. Uh, out in the west, it's really been uh, a lot less. Maybe 20 years is kind of all they've been. Also, it is interesting, you'd see a difference in fire. There's a lot more fire out in the west because they faced a lot more persecution out in the west. So, there's very much more hardship out there. So, just different groups. But we spent uh, a week with each of these. Um, and Leadership Resources committed to go to these groups uh, twice a year for four years. They've gone to the West five times now, and they've gone to the East four times. I had a chance to go the very first time into the East uh, to meet with them, um, but um, had, a, had a great time. So it's good to see some old friends, good to meet some new friends. And uh, what they're trying to do in... Uh, in a series of eight sessions, they, they meet for four days together, like all day, every day for four days, as uh, they're really trying to teach them really simple Bible study techniques, meaning this, just read the Bible, look at it to understand what the original intent was, and then when you explain it, when you preach it to your people, just explain it and let God speak. And that's what I do every Sunday. So their training is really simple, it's not... It's not far out there. It's something that you all probably are more skilled at than these Nepali pastors. Just read the Bible, understand the Bible, explain the Bible. It's all, all they do. Now, as simple as that is, it's a radical thought for those in Nepal. Particularly for Nepali pastors, because before they met with leadership resources, all these men, and most of them are preaching constantly, twice a week, once a week. And in Nepal, it's not like they got one guy who preaches all the time. This is generally the case in America. Oftentimes, they, they preach twice a month or, or once a month, a big rotation. Because a lot of times, pastors are, are in different places. Just the, the church has grown so much, a few pastors that they need to do that. Anyway, I heard over and over and over again of how uh, these Nepalis did exactly what um, most other Nepali pastors do that's preach their own ideas. Well, one of, the con- one of the big concepts that is taught in this training is catch the big idea of the passage. How would you summarize what the main point of this passage is? And when you come to a passage of Scripture, look for it and then speak that. So, in other words, God speaks to us what the big idea is and then you go forth and speak that. And over and over again, I heard them say, um, I used to preach my own ideas, but now I preach God's ideas. What a... What a one, and it's totally transforming for them. And they're just trying to learn how it is that they can understand God's ideas and then speak that to others. Now, all these men also um, will then take this training and then will pass it on to their spheres of influence. And so many of these guys have, uh, have shepherding responsibilities over several churches. But they will go and take key leaders from all these churches and they will teach them kind of the same material. It's really trying to be really transferable so they can take it and teach it to others. And uh, when they came and gave the reports on their second generation training, how it was, time and time again, the same thing. Well, before I u- received this training, I used to say what I wanted to say. I used to teach my thoughts. But now I've come to understand that I've been wrong for many years. And now I need to teach God's thoughts. And in that way, they are participating in the Gospels. They just see God's thoughts are, are what, they, um, what they need to teach. Now, with our arrangement in the church in Nepal... 
my sharing over there is helpful. We also as a church have helped fund the Eastern group uh, with a little bit and um, we will continue to do that just to help this group of men come and, and learn these things. Well, I want to share with you a story about uh, two men. They're in the next picture here. Uh, they really touched my heart. Um, first, first thing I like about this picture is how tall I look. <laughs> um, this is Pastor... Uh, 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 Kuberman Rye and Pastor Tom Rye. Uh, and these men are mountain men. Uh, and they are small because they need to be small because they go up and down mountains. In order to get to the training, they spent four days traveling. Now, I spent 40 hours traveling and I was pretty wiped out. They spend four days traveling. The first two days are spent walking. And I'm talking 16 hours walking each day up and down the mountains to get to a bus stop where they can take a bus that takes them two days to get to the training. And uh, that's how remote uh, they live. And together, these two men oversee about 30 churches in the mountains of Nepal. And they travel to these mountains up and down the, the hills to try to reach out and do what they can do with these, these groups. Uh, and they, as they go, they're applying what they're learning. And uh, really what they're learning is not... Not anything special, just applying, just read the Bible, understand it, and explain it. And they're also teaching people to do that as well. So teaching the other leaders who are preaching when they're gone and teaching and leading just to do the same thing so that God would, uh, would reign in their churches. Um, and you know what, it's interesting. If I would want to try to go to the, their sphere of influence where they are to try to reach them, first of all, I have a difficult time getting there. Uh, but second, the cultural gap is pretty big. These men said that they're uneducated because they're mountain people. And so they said, for us to study and to get this, and so they're talking about in comparison with the other pastors, they said, we have to work twice as hard as all of you guys in order to get what we can get. And then they said, but we get twice the blessing because they have to work twice as hard. And so you, you, these mountain people where they are, you know, not very educated at all. The, the cultural gap is really too big to really be useful. These guys are the ones that are effective to reach to those people, and that's what they do. But with a, a feeling of, uh, of deficiency a little bit, they asked one of their country leaders, one of the, our in-country leaders at Leadership Resources, to help them train key leaders. And uh, next slide is a John Chetri. He uh, really kind of took care of all the finances and all the arrangements. This guy did a, a great job. Uh, there he is with his wife. Um, I forget where she's from. Maybe she's from the Philippines, I'm not exactly sure. And their son, just born, just turned one years old when I was there, the training. But anyway, now they said, hey, John, could you come and help with the training? And he said, sure. And so he told me what the training was like. In fact, he told Yvonne, too, on Skype. It was really amazing. He, in, in Nepal, was telling Yvonne about this. A great story, so I've heard it about three times now. And so I'm, I'm pretty close to what he said. He said, it was the rainy season, so... When he took the bus, the bus couldn't go quite so far because it was too sloppy, so it stopped. So for him, it was a four-day walk. He said, Steve, you walk there. It would be a six-day walk for you, Steve, in order to get there. But he said, it's a one day up the mountain and one day down the mountain and one day up the mountain and one day down the mountain in order to get there. And, uh, and he said, 16 hours a day walking, uh, hot and hard. And he said, with the rainy season, there were leeches that would get on his, uh, on his legs as he would would walk along. And at one point he said he was walking in this valley and it was very hot. He said, Steve, very hot, very hot. And there wasn't, um, wasn't any wind. The sun was beating down on him and there wasn't any wind blowing there. So it was really hot and they're drinking their water and they were out of water. And so they went along and hoping to come across a village, but they didn't come across a village and they were really thirsty. And so they took their, their bottle of water and they poured it in the, the river and filled it up in the river. And, and when they looked at you, you've seen what that, you know, I remember when I was in junior high, we did the pond scum project. Now, this was pretty close. But this is a river, so it's a little clean. But, but he said all this dirt and stuff is kind of swinging around. And he said, but we were thirsty. We had a drink. So he said, we prayed and drank two big bottles of this stuff, just trying to, trying to get it down, trying to help. And uh, so anyway, he's, he's continuing along, going along. Um, and then he said, um, as, as he walked, walked along, uh, I'm trying to get this right. Yeah, he, he came upon a, uh, a village and he needed to use the toilet. He said he'd been holding it in for a while, but he needed to use the toilet. And looking for a toilet. And uh, these mountain people don't have toilets. They said, well, just go down by the river because then when you're done, you can just wash yourself up. And he went, 
that's the same river that I drank from. <laughs> and he says, everybody in all the villages, that's what they do. That's what, and God, God protected them. So anyway, that's, that's, um, that's what he did. And finally, he, he got there to the training. He said, four days, no shower, no nothing, just, just awful. The people there have electricity sometimes. If it's sunny, they have electricity because of the batteries. If it's not sunny, they don't have electricity on that day. Uh, but he got there dirty and stinky, and, and uh, all he could do was wash up by the river water is about all that he could do. And then he, gathered, he was gathered there with the people of the training. So we go to the next picture. Here are the pe- people in the training. You can see uh, Pastor Tom right here, and uh, Kuberman is over there on the far right. And so all these guys, in order to get there, had to walk a day to get to uh, the central church. And uh, except this guy here walked three days in order just to get there for this training in John helped them uh, with the training. And uh, these people, he said, were very eager. Um, and it was three full days. He just kind of said, well, this is what we taught before. and We're kind of coming and helping teaching that again. And what it's taught is, is really three things. One is um, just modeling what Bible exposition is. Uh, so that would be like more of a sermon, modeling what a sermon might be. Uh, second is what's called a, um, a, a dig session, where you're just kind of digging into Bible study principles. Um, and then the third is uh, a do session where each of these people have an opportunity then to have studied a passage beforehand and come and bring how they would understand it, how they would break it up, how they might preach it, kind of dialoguing back and forth uh, in that way. And, and by the way, just this method of training, all, you know, all these leaders across Nepal said how different this is than most training. Most training bring people over and they just talk to us, they talk to us, they talk to us and then they leave. But... With only 12 to 15 groups of, of men, much more interaction and much more back and forth. And what we're, what the, the strategy of that is really to, to get a few who will multiply themselves. And uh, Bill Mills, who has done, um, uh, done pastor's conferences for years, he said, in foreign land, it's easy to do a pastor's conference, especially if they have a little money. You invite them to come. You, you pay for it. It's a nice place. And then you talk to them and go. He says, I've stopped doing those because they're not nearly as fruitful as this is to dig deep in a few who dig deep into others uh, over a four-year span of time. And a lot of it is just the, the time spent. So four days for eight trips. I mean, that's 30 days together over a period of time just helping them. It's just a great strategy. Anyway, uh, John spent three days with these people. And then after John went back home, he heard about uh, how they said, no, we're, we're mountain people and we need more help. So let's, send it, let's, go long, let's go another day. Let's go four days next time. So that's just, just an indication of the heart that they have to study. Um, but each night, John told me that as he slept with these people, he, he basically slept on top of uh, maybe a bamboo or like a wooden type structure. And that's where he sat up there, kind of with wooden slats. So there were holes in the floor. And you know what was beneath him? It was the barn stable beneath him. So it was the goats and the, um, the water buffaloes and things like that. So he said at night, you know, all the ticks kind of came up into the house. He said he rarely got a good night's sleep. Maybe two hours he'd sleep and then these ticks would be all over him. Um, and so I, I said, uh, after he was done, then four days walk up, down, up, up and down. And he gets his bus only to come back home. And I said, John, would you do it again? And you know what he said? He said, yes, I hope to. I would love to do it again. And he said, it's because the hunger of the church leaders pays back any physical difficulties that we have. So that makes the training worth it all. Um, that's just a kind of idea about how they are going forth the gospel and we are participating with them. It's all for the gospel. And I'm thankful that we can, in some measure, join together with them in sharing, in participating in the gospel as well, as verse 5 says. Um, and what's interesting here about this is that... Um, is there are many people there, they, they took our pictures. So they said, oh, so we can tell these people who our teachers are. But we'll never know them, and they'll never, never know us, but there is a link together that we have. And you will never know, even these pastors here, but there is a link between us and them as uh, there's a representative sent. In all the way. And I'm just thankful uh, for their participation in the gospel in that way. And, and not all pastors are way remote. Um, on my plane ride home, I had a chance to sit next to... Uh, a guy, actually, very interesting. This is totally another story, but uh, I was hoping to get some sleep from Kathmandu to Hong Kong. And then I asked this guy what he does. And uh, basically, he said that he, um, he's 21 years old and for the last three years has used his English as a ticket to travel. And so he's bored with life, basically. He grew up in London, 
went to a fairly rich school in Italy um, until he was 13 and learned. And so basically, he uses English and he goes. He travels the world. He started in Mexico, went down Central America, uh, went stopped someplace, went down South America. So I'd like to be in Brazil. And so he signed up. Anyone teach English? I'll teach English. And so in Brazil, for 10 hours a week, he taught English and saved money in Brazil. Just they paid so well. And so then he stored up his money, went down to Argentina, said, no, I don't want like that. And then he went, and he's been just kind of doing this. I think he was in Thailand for maybe six months just teaching English, you know, making a lot of money, living like a king, and then progressing on. He was, he was on his way up to China. He says, yeah, I got a six-day visa in China. I'll start teaching English, and we'll just see how it goes. But anyway, I was talking to this guy about the gospel, shared the gospel clearly with him. It was very interesting. Um, I was hoping to sleep, but that's what God did. But I told him about these guys, and he said, that's not very strategic, is it? I mean, why would you go there? Why don't you go to cities? I said, well, not everyone is like this. But I know my heart beats that who else is going to reach these people? Because this guy is more about strategy and thinking long term, thinking big. And I guess I'm thinking about everybody is precious. And so their story just encouraged me. Not everybody, though, are mountain people. A lot of them are cities and areas of influence as well. So broad spectrum. But these guys stood out because of how remote they were. Well, I'm thankful for participating in the gospel with them. Uh, secondly, I'm also thankful for God's sovereign working in Nepal. Thankful for God's sovereign working in Nepal. And that's expressed here in verse 6. If you look in verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that verse is obviously talking about God's sovereign working in the church in Philippi to accomplish all His purposes in the church. And God's purpose, the church start and bring it to completion. Now this church in Philippi, was studying this, was very interesting. It started in Acts chapter 16. So let's turn over there to Acts 16. The one who began a good work will be faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Acts 16, we see the Beginning of the church in Philippi, beginning in verse 14. Well, verse 13. Acts 16, verse 13. Well, in verse 11. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside. To outside the gate to a riverside. We were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking with the women who had assembled. And so there they were. They were just traveling Philippi. Just said, well, let's just find where they're praying. And out there on the Sabbath day, he didn't enter the synagogue. Maybe there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. Probably wasn't. There was a secularized place. But just finding some people who might have some God-fears. And there was a God-fear, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was listening. And God was sovereign in her heart. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And she and her household, and, she, and when she and all her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so she prevailed upon us. And there was God beginning His church, beginning the work in the church in Philippi. Uh, establishing the church, God opening the heart of Lydia um, to respond. And Lydia believed and trusted and her household did and they were baptized. She said, hey, please come and stay with us. And so, so He did. And thus start, started the work of God in Philippi. And this is Philippians 1.6. He began the work. It's referring right here. And uh, we can just even see some more beginnings of this work. Verse 16. It happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, this is, a, I'm not sure how, but some demon was infiltrating in her. Was, she was possessed of that. She had some ability in fortune-telling. Her masters were making some kind of fortune. And she was following after Paul and us. And she kept crying out, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued to do this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed because, I'm not sure exactly why, we can say that another time, but anyway, annoyed at her, just kind of maybe just ranting on and going and turned to her and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And it, presumably a demon, came out of her that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer guard to hold them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What a way to start a church, huh? You go down by the river, meet some women, talk to them, and then you meet the slave girl, cast out the demons. Then you find yourself beaten and imprisoned. But that's how God started the work in Philippi. So we continue on in verse 25. About midnight, it's a great story. This is a testimony of their faith. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. I believe the truth be told, this is really what helped start the church in many ways in Philippi. The prisoners are listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake. Um, so that the foundations of the prison house were all shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw the prison door open He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because otherwise the Romans would have killed him for letting the prisoners go and supposing this prisoner had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself! We are here! And he called for lights and rushed down in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there it is. You see persecution being the means of of drawing people to Christ when things are hard. But yet, persevering through it, people see, hey, that's different. Why are Paul and Silas singing hymns down here? Uh, Their prison, don't think prison like we have. Think worm-infested, you know, toilet place of just kind of being held. And they were there singing praise to God. The prisoners listened to them saying, this is different. And when you face through the trials of life, whatever, face unemployment or difficulties or conflicts, and you, you rise out of there well and trusting in Christ, that's what makes a difference. It doesn't make a difference when we get all this blessing and say, yeah, I love Jesus. Well, the world loves Jesus too when things are good. But when things are bad and you still be faithful, that's what God uses. And that's what God uses in this man's life. Serves what must he do to be saved. And then comes the message of salvation. Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So somehow they'd come over to his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So, so the gospel's coming, not only the Philippian jailer, but it comes to his household. And the gospel's preached there. And they were all believing, is what verse 34 says. And they were all baptized, verse 33. Just, just really quick like that. God is starting the work in Philippi. Continue on. Now when the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these things to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they're trying to send us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come out themselves and bring us out. Let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these things to chief magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They were Jews. They thought they were Jews, but they were also Romans as well. And, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging with them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison. They entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. That is the start of the church in Philippi. It starts with some women down by the prayer place of prayer, beaten, thrown in prison, Philippian jailer, converted his house, and then kicked out of the city. Now, you try to find out any church planter, any church ministry that says this is the strategy, (laughs) you're not going to find anybody. Uh, One of the things I really was refreshed with in uh, the study of Acts was Bill Mills. He taught about uh, what people need. Everyone's talking about vision today. You need a vision for your church. What's your vision? What's your vision? And rather than being preachers of the word, Pastors often are vision casters. He said, well, just think about how the church was born in Acts. Acts chapter 2, Jesus says to stay there and pray. And when they just stayed there and prayed, and then the Holy Spirit came, saved thousands, and they went on their way. No church strategist would say, well, just stay in an upper room and pray for ten days. 
and then ten thousands of people. That's how God does it. Um, and then in Acts chapter 8, what happened? Persecution came, and then the church was scattered. The church going really well in Jerusalem. And there's no church strategist would say, okay, i tell you what, here's the idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, get this uh, persecution. We can scatter and get to Judea. No, what was happening, everyone was saying, hey, we're enjoying this fellowship. You read Acts 2 fellowship, you read Acts 4 fellowship. It was wonderful. It was the Spirit of God, though, who brought the persecution and scattered the church. And nobody in their scheming and planning would ever be able to plan that. And it goes on and on and on and on throughout. It's not a vision for the future. You need a vision of God and God then will work and you see what God's doing and you just join up with that. And that's what happened here in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul was just there, met these ladies, that God was sovereign. He opened the heart of Lydia and started this church and then he's gone. And this church, you know, he's off in Thessalonica. We already read in Thessalonica. They twice sent to help his need while he was three weeks in Thessalonica, immediately giving of their money to him. Anyway, that's how the church got started, sovereignly working in the way. The church, also it's interesting, we know how the church ended, if you will. Look at Philippians, or Revelation chapter 3. Um, this is written some 30, 40 years later, Revelation chapter 3. We see the beginning in Acts 16, we see the end in Revelation 3 of this church, of this generation of this church. Paul is writing the church in Philadelphia the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He was holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one's open, says this. Verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I put for you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And here it is, the key verse, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and this is written to Philadelphia about a generation later. And he says, because you have been faithful and have kept my word, I also will keep you from the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. So some persecution is going to come. Some difficulties are going to come. And it's probably the, the Roman persecution, which lasted from A.D. 70 until 325 A.D. Just the intense struggle in came, And he says he's going to protect them in that process. And the promise of Paul in Philippians chapter 1 is, is that God, who started the work, would complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, would continue working in you, would continue to help. And we know what God did at the beginning, and we know that God is going to protect them and keep them near the end. But how much do we know in between? We know very, very little. Um, we just know that God is going to do it and keep it. We don't know the names of any of the overseers or deacons. Uh, we know some of the church members' names. If you turn back to Philippians, we know a few of their names. Like Epaphrodites in chapter 1, verse 25. Maybe he's one of the overseers. I'm not sure. He's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. He's a messenger. Uh, we know two women who are fighting with each other, Yodia and Syntyche. We know them. Chapter 4, verse 2. Um, we know uh, there's this true companion who he talks to in verse 3. We don't even know his name. So we know a little bit about the names of the people. We know very little about um, how others in Philippi came to the Lord. We know, we know that from uh, Revelation 3.10 that they kept his word of perseverance, so they were strong in that. We don't know how that worked itself out. We don't know much about the middle. But we do know that God was sovereignly working through the middle and helping them and keeping them at that time. And I'm sure there are many stories that could be told um, time and time again about uh, all these people who are unsung heroes to our standpoint. Like, like the world will never know these guys. The world will never know Pastor Tom Rye. The world will never know Pastor Kuberman Rye. No one will know that. But they have by God's grace, been empowered to continue to propagate the church in the northern regions of, of Nepal. 
And I just think about my own trip to Nepal. God was sovereignly working in uh, my trip to Nepal to help build the church there. And so I just want to give an opportunity this morning to thank the Lord for the ways in which He exerted His sovereignty uh, in my, my time there. Uh, my first Saturday there, uh, I arrived late Friday night, about 11 o'clock at night, slept at John Chetri's house, and then was taken to Bakunde, about an hour and a half drive away, where we have supported a children's home and helped uh, build a church there. And once you go to the next slide here, here's a picture. There I am preaching in church. Uh, a guy named Wilson Shrestha is interpreting for me, interrupting for me. It's nice to speak without being interrupted anyway. But there wasn't a church. And then I was asked uh, later that afternoon, Steve, would you like to do some leadership training with some of the men, some Bible training, uh, like tomorrow? I'm like, okay, like what, what do you want to do? Well, how about they maybe come at 10 and leave at 4 and we just do whatever, six hours of training? I was like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. And uh, so I did a kind of thinking that, well, what am I going to do? And I decided just to work through the book of Ephesians, uh, just figuring that's a good thing they need to know. One of the things that uh, one of the guys told me, it would be helpful if we understand the role of the pastor and role of the deacons. And so Philippians 4, if you remember, speaks about how, how the leaders are to equip the saints for the work of service and the saints are to serve. So anyway, uh, I was there. And the next slide, I met with these men who are key leaders of the church uh, there in Bakunde. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure of all these guys, but Siraj here, I spent a week with Siraj. He went to the Eastern Nepal training. And uh, with Sunil right here, uh, he was also training. Um, Sunil, by the way, has got a heart. He goes up to Dapcha up the hill uh, each week, each Saturday. Uh, the church there is going well. Uh, Siraj is uh, going to Kawa, I think, twice. Uh, every Wednesday night and then every other Saturday or something like that, helping the church in uh, Kawa. But he's leading the children's home, doing a great job there. That is the children's home in the background. All these other, these are workers. Uh, this guy works, he's got a Bob... Clinton has helped him out with a, uh, a pig loan, a minor loan, has helped him with some pigs. Here's uh, Pastor Sherry Lal. He's a pastor of the church. This guy's a tailor. Uh, uh, you know what? I forget. This guy's a tailor. Uh, Sunil works on a goat farm. Uh, this guy, Bozaraj, he's far left. He is a, a master carpenter. Uh, he's about 50. He's over 50 years old. I asked him. He said he's 51. I don't believe him. I think he's older than that, but... Um, but anyway, Siraj and Sunil get the training from Easter Duran. They come back. And do you know who is the most eager one of all these guys to get the training? Bozraj, the 50-plus-year-old man. It speaks of his humility, I think. And as a result of it, it's very interesting that when uh, Siraj and Sunil gave the report at the training, they said that Bozraj, from this, this training, basically, you get the big idea and speak the big idea, now, he feels confident to go and help another church. And he goes every Saturday to help this other church a couple uh, hours walk away uh, just every Sunday. So you just see, that's how the church is, is spreading. So sometimes these guys are in Bakunde, sometimes they're not, but they are at the core of the church. Anyway, I'm uh, speaking to them through Ephesians, just trying to you know, walk through it. Chapters 1 through 3, the grace of God. Get them to be overwhelmed with the grace of God. That chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 would, would work itself out in the unity of God. And the leaders would equip the saints and then... We hit and addressed the issues of marriage in chapter 5, and it was, it was very helpful. Um, but anyway, at one point, we took a break, because we were going for five hours or whatever. We took a lunch break also, but we also took a, another break. And um, they were there at the children's home, and so we can go to the next slide. Um, they were swinging. Now, these guys, think about it. He's a, he's a 50-year-old man. There's Bose Raj on the swing, and he's a 50-year-old guy. And, and he's like, he never grew up with any swings. What's, what's swings about? And so... If you look at that, that's how he stayed. You know, he didn't, he didn't pump his legs like this at all. He kind of backed up like this and went, whoo, you know. So kind of going back like this. So he wasn't, you know, he's not swinging very high there. And I saw this and I said, these guys don't know how to swing at all. I said, what are they doing? You got to pump. And so I jumped on a swing and I, I just started pumping and getting up. And these guys are like, whoa, whoa. They start seeing me. And I'm, you know, when you go up there and it, it kind of, uh, kids, you know what this is about. When you swing up so high and it kind of, Jerks and then it jerks down. You know what I'm talking about? You've swung like that, Ethan? Yeah, all you guys have. But they don't know how to do it. They're kind of looking. Oh. And, then I, and then here's the sovereignty of God. I'm swinging down here and on the bottom of my swing, the chain broke on my swing. And um, so what, what happened then is I, I slid out, I scuffed up my knee and I scuffed up my arm a little bit. My, my fingers were bruised because of holding down and slamming onto the, 
the end of the thing, and I, I, I probably went out about 25 feet, something like that. I mean, I was really going high, so I, I went really far. And um, pride came before the fall. <laughs> that's really what it was. So uh, we can go to the next slide, and uh, that's what happened to me. And it doesn't look so bad there. That was just injured, uh, but throughout my whole time there, and it's, it's almost all, all gone now. But there's the broken link that I, I broke off the swing set. And um, the, the people in Nepal are very... I don't even know this word. Ingenuity. They're filled with ingenuity. So here's what the kids did with the swing. I saw this afternoon. Next slide. There's what they did with the swing. Look, so it was broken off, but he's kind of tied around there. He's kind of swinging like that a little bit. But they, and then the, that was God's sovereignty over my accent. Think about how else my swing could have broken. I mean, if I would have been on the back swing like this and it broke, I'd have been face plant down. I could have broken something. I could have. Lots of things, but God, I think, was gracious. I think God was sovereignly working so that I could be able to continue in the training. Uh, also, when we get to, um, we went to uh, western Nepal, uh, when we were near Chitwan. Chitwan is borderline tropical. And uh, when we got there, we were informed that in recent days there's been an outbreak of dun- dungi fever. Darcy? Dungi? Is that how you say it? What is it? Huh? Thing? It was called Gungi fever, where basically what it is, it's, it's, uh, it's carried by mosquitoes. And they, they bite you, and quickly afterwards, you have a 104, 105 fever that lasts for a week or so. The only, no treatment for it. The only treatment is lots of liquids and lots of Tylenol to try to keep your fever down. And uh, so we got there, they said Gungi fever, and I didn't have email, I couldn't communicate that to you. And uh, In fact, I just told Yvonne about it this morning, but... But God is sovereign over mosquitoes, and uh, we, were, we were healthy. Now, the natives, they're protected from immunity-wise, but over the past few weeks, there have been some foreigners traveling through there who had gotten the disease. And so we wore a lot of mosquito repellent. We had these uh, uh, mosquito smell things that were going that just kind of keep me away. And I'm thankful that God was sovereign over mosquitoes and allowing us to go. So I need to think about this. Now, what if, what if Alan gets sick with this stuff? How am I going to teach it, you know? Um, because he does this all the time, so it's easier for him. So it would have been more difficult, and he has a great thing. But anyway, here's another way of God was sovereign. After, after the training in the west, then we traveled across the Terai to the east. So I, I got some pictures about what that, that drive looked like. Um, so we saw, I mean, there's like a bicycle piled up high like that. We see lots of things like that, but they're on the road. So next slide. I got four slides, because during this, this drive, we're, we're, driving, we're driving all the way like this, in and out. You know, we're missing... Cows and goats and people and chickens and buses and hay rides and tractors and motorcycles and bikes and pedestrians. They're just kind of walking out. We're, we're weaving in. And so this is what we had. We got two more pictures of the, the road and the Terai. There now, it doesn't look like it, but if you just kind of look, but you see all the stuff that's coming up and, uh, you know, just people walking and that's how it is. One more picture. And uh, you see all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're going in and out. And uh, we then had a... And actually, I did send this picture out to the church. We had a problem with our white uh, bearing on our right front tire. And uh, by God's grace, we drifted another... We didn't drift, but we we limped along probably about three miles an hour uh, to about five miles ahead. I'm not sure if that calculates out. Um, Anyway, we're going 10, 15. We're going... We went probably for about half an hour really slow to a mechanic shop, which is right up the road, the next town. Across the Terai, there's lots of... Lots of farmland, lots of desolate. We just happened to be close to a city. There's the mechanic shop. I try to figure out, how do they know it's a mechanic shop? But they do. And uh, the guy came out and fixed it, fixed our tire for us. The next slide. And how, he, just, he just sits down there and squats and he kind of works on his thing and, and was very skilled and able. And um, uh, just he fixed us up for that. And two hours later, we're on, on a ride off. Now, it's also interesting, sovereign, that this guy was a Muslim because if he was a Hindu, he'd be celebrating Pat Puja. Chat Puja, which is on the next slide. We have uh, basically what they do is they fast. Uh, this day was a day of fasting. They don't work. And uh, this is down by, celebrated by the people down by the Terai. And then these people now are walking towards the river where they're going to have a big party and celebrate. And as soon as the moon comes out, they see the reflection of the moon in the river. Then they worship the sun and the moon and the river and they have their feast. And here they are walking. If you look, if you go back, that man is walking barefooted. All these men were walking by barefooted on the, the hot gravel there, but that's what they're doing. The ladies were all festive, um, ready to go. Next, next slide. The ladies are all there going to pot puja, Chot Puja is what it's called. 
And uh, this delayed us. It was at night then. We're driving across the Terai. Bill Mills was with us, was scared to death. Um, just, he said, we're going to hit somebody. He said, if we get through this, it's going to be a minor miracle that we didn't hit anybody. But by God's grace, because we were delayed two hours, so we arrived in the night, we didn't hit anybody. But when, you, when it's dusty and it's dirty and it's coming up and they got their brights coming this way, you're really just driving by faith for a while until you can see. And these people are walking alongside the road like, oh, they can see me. <laughs> we can't see them. Um, very hard. But God was gracious, was sovereign through there. And I think that's God's sovereign working in Nepal. Nobody will know about but I just want to give praise to him for that. Okay, I've got one more point, and we've got to get to this point. So we're late, but bear with me. Uh, not only thankful for our participation in the gospel, thankful for God's sovereign working in Nepal, I'm also thankful for love among the brethren. Look at verse 7. It is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Here is Paul about the Philippians, just rejoicing with them and praying for them and, and having joy in their participation in the gospel. He says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. And there's another point I thought about, about how he was a Jew and they were Gentiles, and yet the same grace of God came to them. Because I saw Nepal is a different culture than, than I was, just seeing the same Bible, talking about the same things, and it all worked together. And uh, I was going to make a big point of that, but I don't have time, so I'm not going to do that. But anyway... Here he is talking about how he has these people in their hearts, a great love for them, describing how, how these people, like little people in his heart. And you know what he means. He just means, I have a great affection for you, I have a great love for you. And I know that this is the case for many of you. You support widows or orphans in Nepal. Just $60 a month supports an orphan there. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And as you send treasure out to Nepal, I know some of your hearts are there with those people. And um, you're making a difference. Just know that. As I was amongst the children there, the children's home, they're so happy. They have 50 kids there. 51. But Siraj's wife, Janti, is pregnant with twins and due in three weeks, three months or so. Um, so that's a... That's a neat thing. Perhaps we could do something for them. Yvonne said we could do that. So they're going to have 53 children in this home. And they are all so obedient. And they're so happy. And I said, Siraj, how do you keep them so obedient? Because I have five children. And it's a struggle for me to keep my five children obedient. And you got 50. I said, you spank them? He said, no. He says what, what he does is, is if there's a problem, he oftentimes will sit down at night and talk to everybody about the problem. It's probably with 50, there's social pressure that says, hey, if we're going to keep this thing going, you need to help and ship up. And they just kind of all, all encourage each other in the process. Anyway, they're doing well. And I just encourage you who support children there, know that, that uh, they're happy. They all know their stories. They all know how they were abandoned and forsaken. And they all know what life would be like apart from God's blessing in their life in this children's home. So you're making a, a big idea. Well, recently we've been praying for two of the children, those of you who support children or on Bob Clinton's email list, you know about two children, Shristi and Anand. So next, next picture, I had a chance to be with Shristi and Anand. Uh, Shristi's there on the left. Uh, her story, probably some of you know it, she got encephalitis about a year ago. Swelling of the head, suppressing of the brain. And, uh, you know, mostly kids, get, they die from encephalitis over there. just don't know what to do, don't have any doctor's care. Uh, fortunately, she's at children's home. They rushed to the hospital and helped. But she was in a coma, I think, for a month, maybe, maybe at least a month, maybe two months. And basically, she is slowly uh, getting better. Just, she, Bob said that just now she's starting to eat rice. Uh, she'd been in a feeding tube for a long time, just starting to eat rice. Just last week, she said, uh, Mama, you know, so I think she's probably dreaming and just trying to come out of this dream and her... You know, her arms are kind of, so she's moving a bit, but she, I don't know what her future is, uh, whether she'll ever, but I do know that she's just getting a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better every day. She's staying at a youth hostel in Kathmandu. And the guy on the right, you know his story, perhaps, his, his name is Anand. He is, um, uh, I think he's 14 years old, and he has brain cancer. And uh, I think that was diagnosed a year ago, I think, less. I got that as a brain. No, it's in the brain. It's about a year ago, I think it was. They had even brain surgery. Um, and what's happened is it's come back. 
And um, so Bob is raising some money, I think it's maybe $5,000, to take him to India. And they, they got some radiation that will kind of pinpoint, uh, kind of right the tumor. And they're just trying, we're just going to try to save this man's, this boy's life. Um, you know, mostly in India, he would have been dead long ago, but God's caring for him. And, and he is happy. He has the joy of the Lord in his heart. And so even I have a, a video here um, uh, that I wanted to play for you. This is Bob and Anand. Timothy. Yeah. This is Anand, who's my grandson Anand, and uh, he is so grateful to all of you for praying for him, and uh, he loves Jesus. He wants to thank you. You thank him, right? Yeah. You can thank the church too. If anybody from church is there, just say, you know, thank them for all the prayers. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for praying. Uh-huh. And you're happy? Yeah. And you're trusting God yeah. for everything, right? Yeah. And so now our next step is maybe you're going to India yeah. for radiation and possible surgery. So you're feeling confident? You feel good? Yeah. You can trust in God? Yeah. yeah. Okay. There he is. Okay. We're very happy. We, we also, we appreciate you so much. Everybody who's praying for now. And for Shristi, who's laying here behind us as well. And uh, they've gone through a long time of difficulties, but, but God is here. God is with them. Thank you. Thank you, one of you. God bless you. So there you just see love of Americans for these people, love of Bob. Bob just loves these people, and we see that here in Philippians 1. I just saw that and experienced it. Um, you know, this was probably for sure the most touching part of my trip. Uh, we got there, and Tristy's kind of on the bed, kind of, and Bob says, you want to pray for her? And I said, sure. And so I knelt down there right in the bed and just sobbed. I just sobbed. I couldn't pray. Because we pray. Pray for Shristi and Anand almost every night with Stephanie. And normally I'm at Stephanie's bed, and now I'm on her bed just praying for her and her life and what it's going to be like. It's hard. Um, but a flood of emotions came over me, and I think it's just uh, because I have there in my heart. And prayed for these, these children who are just precious. Um, and I prayed for Anand as well. I was a little more composed at that time, but Anand is, you know, his, his prognosis is worse than hers. Um, if they didn't say this, but if he lives another year, I think I'd be shocked. Uh, like even Pat Clinton, you know, he's got a similar thing in Pat Clinton. As you know, he's a director of the Rockford Rescue Mission, and he had brain surgery, and things were taken away, and he was doing better, but now things are turned worse for him. Um, maybe some of you know that. Um, but that was that was Paul's testimony. He said, verse eight, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that just speaks of the the love of of Christians, and and can go from Paul to Philippi, even even abroad. And so I would just encourage you to foster Christian love. And I am thankful for Christian love, as it shows itself out and it works itself out. It's a love that longs for others, even if they're far away. And I say, you know what, if you want to experience this longing, then send some of your treasure there. You want to experience some love like this? Then invest in other people's lives. Give yourself. Pray for other people. And you can, you can see this and know they say, what should I pray? Well, pray verse 9, 10, 11. And this I pray, that your love, Philippians, may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And uh, there they are. It's a prayer of love. It's a prayer for love. It's a love. It's a prayer that people need. I don't care whether it's Nepalese or whether it's Americans. We all need this, that our, our love for one another needs to abound more and more. We need God's help in the process. That's why we pray, God, help us to be greater lovers of other people. You know, I had a wonderful time in Nepal. Um, mostly met with smiles and happiness and joy. But I'm not naive enough to think that everything is just all hunky-dory in Nepal. Uh, there's great hurt there. There's great trouble. There's great sorrow. There's great conflict. In fact, um, I spoke the second Sunday, first Sunday is Saturday. They worship on Saturday because it's a, a holiday for them. Uh, spoke on Saturday in Bakunde. Next Saturday, I was at a church in Dharan, um, the second largest church in the city. And I was there, had a wonderful time, and things looked so good. And then I found out later that about 
three months ago, they just experienced a massive church split. That the, They're the second largest church in the city, and then the third largest church in the city then just kind of split from each other. I don't know any of the details, but they're learning the American way, I guess, right? Um, but I just I think about what happens when churches are not united and uh, the struggle that comes there and the, the difficulty to love and um, know that their struggles are the same as our struggles and so we need to pray for them that their, their, their love may abound still more and more because they need that and we need that as well uh, here in America. Well, that's my report, if you will, a little bit. There's so much more to tell. There's so much more to see. But these are the things that struck me really about how we participate in the Gospel in Nepal, how you all have done that financially, prayerfully, how God has been sovereign, how He protected me during that time, protected our team during that time, and thirdly, how there's a Christian love that, that spans the ocean as well that ought to span us. So, that is pray that we might learn from these things. And, um, you know, as I, as I get back into things, we'll probably have some time. Maybe we'll go through some more slides if you're interested in finding out more about Nepal and the trip and all the stuff about Hindus and all that kind of fun stuff. So let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank You for just a full heart of all the things I've, I've learned um, and the ways that You've impacted my heart uh, just with... Uh, third world nation and the difficulty there and yet seeing Christ triumph in that place and they need hope. They need the hope of Jesus because so many of them are Hindus on a, on a lost road to nothingness. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that You would stir our heart for Nepal. You'd stir our heart for other places which are beyond us. As we started our morning in the prayer meeting, Psalm 67, I pray now, God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause Your face to shine upon us, that Your ways may be known on the earth, Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. So God, I pray that as You bless us with material resources, may we then turn around to be a blessing to others. We can bless Nepal financially, spiritually, and they can bless us. But enable us not to squander our resources on ourselves, but to give them to the cause of Christ to each other, to those who don't know Christ, to a a world of hurting Christians and people who need it. And so help enlarge our vision, God, for for missions. Help to know how we can continue to do more, just a little church like this, to expand and impact the world in whatever little way we can. Thank you for the mountain men who brought the gospel to those mountain people and would pray that you might God, just unite us someday in heaven and may they be grateful for what we have done to try to help them serve Christ faithfully in this time. God, so much to look forward to. I pray you'd stir our hearts in those ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.